This special live interregnum episode of UpZones is brought to you by Yes Seattle Libraries, reminding you to vote yes on Prop 1. Libraries give all people, regardless of background or income, the opportunity to learn and excel through educational resources and classes. That's right, vote yes on Seattle Libraries Prop 1 when the time comes comes as you know we're here on hiatus for the show we've got some personal and family developments that we'll talk about when the show comes back after the break what's going on with ian's personal and family lives no i'm, I'm just kidding we, we're uh, we're not radio announcers here yeah so that's all going on i'm taking a little break as i mentioned before but we are going to come back with the third season of up zones it's going to focus on builders literal and metaphorical what you're hearing here is, is was a really fun Friday about two weeks ago. We got together in celebration of Cascadia Day and discussed what it meant to design and, and define Cascadia with Andy Engelson, the executive director of Cascadia Magazine, Tarika Powell, uh, who's working with Sightline right now, whose expertise is in fossil fuels and petrochemicals, Paige Malat, chair of Cascadia Rail, and a really dope poet named Nadine Maestas. Uh, we had a great conversation. Everybody chipped in. Everybody had a different perspective. There was a lot of thought diversity. We talked about what Cascadia is, what can be done in the future, what's missing, what's uh, better than other places to live. And, and at the end of the day, we, we just made a plan to walk in the forest. I hope you'll enjoy it. Just a reminder, this special mid-interregnum hiatus episode live on Cascadia Days brought to you by Yes Seattle Libraries. And this is UpZones. Things are changing. Things are changing. You have to elect yourself, Jamie. Things are changing. Things are changing. You can't say it, but you know it's true. You elect yourself, so thanks for coming everyone i don't know if any of you know me but i'm ian martinez the least qualified to talk about cascadia on this entire panel <laughs> but i have a weekly podcast called up zones which i hope you will subscribe to today's live episode will be well edited a little bit and run it this uh, this coming week so check it out up zones podcast on all the things that you get podcasts on. Uh, should we do a little intros? Is that, yeah, is that a good way to do it? So I'm, I actually asked the group to tell me what to say about about intros because that's an area where you can get into landmines. So let's <laughs> let's let's just read what they said about themselves. Um, Andrew Engelson is the executive editor and founder of Cascadia Magazine, as he mentioned. It's a nonprofit publication dedicated to journalism, essays, fiction, and poetry across the Cascadia bio region. Um, Paige Mallet uh, is. Mo- a lot. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Happens all the time. The thing about it, podcasts is you can edit them. Start on the top. <laughs> it sounds like Sir Mix a lot, if you remember that. <laughs> oh, I feel a poem coming Page. <laughs> Paige Mixalot is <laughs> chair of Cascadia Rail and has been an advocate for public transportation projects for over 10 years. Uh, Tarika Powell is a Cascadian transplant and environmental policy researcher for Sightline Institute, whose work focuses on fossil fuels and petrochemicals. Uh, and Nadine Maestas is a poet's poet who thinks that the sentence is an extremely oppressive totalitarian regime. <laughs> uh, with that in mind, you know, I, 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 Andy, I think it would be great to start with you just as the kind of, you know, the one whose Cascadia thoughts are in our inbox every day. What is Cascadia? It's a great question. 
uh, a lot of people define it differently. I mean, uh, some people talk about it, you know, we have different words for the place we live in, Pacific Northwest, uh, which doesn't really work sometimes for people in Canada because, you know, it's uh, that's actually their Southwest. Uh, so, yeah, I think uh, Cascadia is this, again, it's this region of 16 million people reaching from Southeast Alaska down to Northern California and then extending pretty much to the Continental Divide. And it's both the region, uh, but it's also those people within the region, 16 million people. I think there's a unique culture to it, and maybe we'll get to talk a little bit about that. Well, Nadine, what's, what is Cascadia culture, in your opinion? Uh, Cascadia culture is under huge transition right now, in my opinion, because it's becoming more diverse. And that is, I mean, it's just, it's it's changing so much right now in a way that it's probably never changed. You know, for a long time, it was very indigenous, and then, like, a bunch of colonial people came in and were like, we're going to do this up and chase you guys out and like stick you on certain lands. We're going to take the rest of the land. And then after that happened, then there were some really racist policies put in place, which we'll probably talk about as, as we go on that kept it very white, like specifically very white and a kind of American whiteness, not like this general whiteness. But now as much as we kind of like harp on gentrification in Cascadia right now, and especially like in Seattle and Portland and Vancouver and the cities up the I-5 corridor. Um, it's also bringing in more diversity than we've ever had, which is like a kind of a weird tension mm -hmm. to talk about in the city. And then also it's just, there's a, there's a huge boom in the arts. So if Cascadia's really starting to define itself, it's right now, in my opinion. And it's partly because of the boom in the arts and it's, fortunately and unfortunately related to gentrification and all the money coming in and artists moving here. That's like right. That, I mean, so. it's funny. The last live episode we did, yeah. we talked about the arts. Yeah. There's a bunch of artists and, and art coordinators and um, th this c connection between money and art yeah. and culture and how, like, you know, if you look at the canon, which I know is very, like, Western and male and all that, but it's, yeah. it's kind of what we're taught, right? Yeah. It's always, the center of arts is always where the richest person in the world lives. Right or or, yeah. or for a very period of time like Venice yeah. and New York. Well, guess where the richest person, right? Two people, if, to yes. my understanding, in the exactly. world live. Yeah. So we have the opportunity to seize that and yes. take those resources and put them into the arts. I mean, do you see that happening? Yes, I absolutely do. And in a way, it's attached to the richest people, but like, or the two two of the richest people in the world being here. There's there's so much money here, but for a long time there's been so much money here, and it hasn't expanded. It hasn't hit the arts. It hasn't like fruited a boom for a long time. It's been here. It's been the case. There's been immense growth, but there's something really different that's happening right now. Mm. That for the arts, it's happening. So there's waves of gentrification that happen. I think that you can see on a very social level that people don't necessarily talk about. So usually what happens is there's a queer movement that moves into a space and it's specifically lesbian and trans. And then there's a lot of DIY kind of projects in neighborhoods and community service that happens from these communities that build up neighborhoods, start to fortify them, make them stronger economically, artistically, politically, socially, and then artists start moving in. And then artists start like, a new kind of beautification or gentrification wave of the project and then gay men move in and really start to bring in an influx of money and then after gay men move in there's an influx of single families with money with income 
And I feel like that's kind of where Seattle is at right now in its huge neighborhoods. And there's a tension happening back and forth of who's coming into the city because there's a lot of single people coming into the city. There's a lot of queer people. There's a lot of people of color that haven't been here before. Just a lot of different communities coming into a place like Seattle and not just Seattle, but a lot of the hotspots on the I-5 corridor in particular and bringing in money, bringing in difference, bringing in um, different aesthetics and artistic things that are going on that are booming that are really directly related to this. So after the single families, well, then, you know, we start sort of start moving more to like a San Francisco like model. But right now I think where we're at is this sort of single family boom. And that's really good for the arts because it means that the arts have already been like booming. And when the arts boom, that's how we define culture. That's how we like sort of connect. We connect on a lot of different things, but usually around culture and the arts, that's pretty significant for a place to define itself as a as a place. There are a lot of things that go into that, but in terms of we're Cascadia, like we're still figuring that out, right? And yeah. part of it is because we're we have a lot of dynamic transition right now. So. That's great. That's really insightful. Thank you for sharing. Thanks. Paige, that actually raises a question for mm-hmm. me, which is I mean a lot of what we just heard is about how wealth and just people are moving into these concentrated spaces up and down the I-5 corridor, right? And I know that a lot of what your work does, and I encourage you to, to talk about it, sure. really focuses on, A, reducing the friction of that movement, right? And there's a social component to that, but also spreading that out, spreading access to whether it's jobs or wealth or, you know, arts or whatever it is. And there's a voice, uh, someone has a, in Tri-Cities has a voice that maybe someone in Seattle wants to hear. That's the artistic component. Someone might want a job in Seattle. Mm-hmm. So how, how do you see kind of the project that you're doing in terms of, you know, high-speed rail of creating that opportunity in, in Cascadia? Sure. So Cascadia Rail is a nonprofit advocacy organization um, that supports high-speed rail connections between Seattle, Portland, and Vancouver, British Columbia. And we're looking at our connections between Seattle and Vancouver and our connections between Seattle and Portland. Um, also with the, the opportunity to have stops in between those cities. So looking at Tacoma and Everett and how we can reduce commutes from 90 minutes of driving, say down to 15 minutes by train, which would be awesome. Um, Or being able to tap into Bellingham and make that a a commuter city or have people commute from Portland into Seattle to work. Uh, So we're looking at, you know, how could this really change the way where people can uh, live where they want and have access to more affordable spaces to live, but also have access to competitive jobs and more job options. Um, we're also exploring what would it look like if we ran a high-speed rail line out to Spokane, and how could that um, you know, help people have different opportunities there and reduce reduce those speeds of your four or five hour journey, um, you know, maybe even cut that in half or make it faster than driving. So uh, what we're looking at too is, you know, with access to different, different things like, like arts activities and things like that, we would be able to say, if you, you have someone living in British Columbia and they want to come down for a show, or if they want to come down for an exhibit, it makes that, it makes that an evening trip for them versus, oh, we have to plan to come down and and spend money on a hotel and really make it more of a, um, an investment to come down for those things rather than looking at it as, as it increases a accessibility. Right? Correct, mm-hmm. correct. Yeah. yeah, it makes things more accessible and and those activities in the community is more affordable for folks. Jerika, that has a strong environment 
environmental impact, right? Right now, what would you say in this region is the number one kind of, I'll call it, what, what, what are we missing? What are we not protecting here that maybe folks would want to know about that we should be putting our attention on preserving as part of the Cascadia environment and, and you know, surroundings? That's a good question, and I probably my answer might be self-interested, but I think also accurate. Uh, since my work my work is in uh, fossil fuels, I think that's the that's the biggest threat that we're looking at right now in Cascadia. There in, in Cascadia, we have a lot of um, you know intentionally protected uh, spaces, and that's not to say that we don't have a lot of uh, the same environmental issues, but I think there is a lot more awareness here and a lot more intentionality about uh, protecting the natural environment. But where people are, are unaware of some things that are going on is that over the last decade or so, the Pacific Northwest has been under tremendous threat of basically becoming, um, I will ask what I like to call getting a Gulf Coast makeover. There's been so many large fossil fuel terminals proposed here. The world's largest coal terminal, the world's largest methanol terminal. Methanol is, um, you know, derived from fossil fuels. It becomes a precursor to making plastics. And we're under that threat just because of geographical location. We don't have a lot of fossil fuel resources here, so they would be shipped from the mountain states um, and or, or NBC from the interior of Canada uh, by rail and by pipeline, um, introducing all sorts of uh, physical hazards, oil, uh, oil trains uh, or pipeline um, hazards going all, all the time through uh, numerous, uh, the, the lands of numerous First Nations um, and indigenous peoples and, and also the takings of private land uh, by the federal government, those issues um, being connected to these large fossil fuel terminals that are essentially moving resources from the interior to be refined here, loaded onto ships and exported to Asia. And so we're taking on what we, the, the threat is to take on all of the pollution and not not very much of the benefits. And what what you see not only is that we have we have been very successful um, in fighting these terminals off, um, but if they had been successful, you would have seen a tremendously different uh, pollution impact that the Northwest would have had, and which would have had a, a global impact. And I think we're still on the we're we've been very successful, but we're still dealing with the threat. And the threat right now is. Um, and building large-scale fracked gas terminals. This is natural gas, which now mostly comes from fracking. And people have a false perception about the cleanliness of natural gas. And so the, the fight that we're engaged in now is educating people that you've been miseducated, <laughs> that this is a clean fuel, and that, you know, 70% of it today comes from fracking. And a lot of the, a lot of it is going, natural gas is going into making petrochemicals, which makes plastics. And so that whole supply chain is, is uh, rather unfortunate. And so that is, I think, the, the biggest threat we're facing now on the Northwest, at least in BC. They have uh, the biggest problem going on right now. About two years ago, there was almost two dozen liquefied natural gas export terminals proposed there. Um, and just because of the market, a lot of them have now uh, fallen off. But we're still looking at 12 to 15. And, you know, the market could the market is not all it's a fickle ally. And so, you know, we're talking about a 
tremendously large terminals of unprecedented size and scale that could really have a quite large detrimental impact and change what our contribution is to climate change in the Pacific Northwest. And so I think that's the biggest threat. Yeah. And, and at the end of the of every episode, for those who listen, we do a, if you care about, you should. So maybe you can give some. Yeah, some, if you care about. We'll, we'll do it at the end. <laughs> oh, okay. This is spoilers. Avengers and no, Upzones. No, no, spoilers. no spoilers. No spoilers. No spoilers. <laughs> um, so, Andrew, you know, I, I, you know, you've been on the show and, and we talk, I, I try to get to know the people and it's a little harder in a panel, but what is the spiritual animus here or the spiritual animating force of, of Cascadia? What does it mean to you that, you know, now you've heard kind of a little bit from mm-hmm. everyone. W- what is it to you? Yeah, I think it's the, it's that unique combination of awareness of the natural environment here and then this kind of creative culture here, I think. Um, and that's one of the reasons I formed this magazine is because I'm really interested in both the, the natural environment here, the bioregion, uh, and what's going on and what, you know, how we're impacting it and how, you know, what, you know, are we succeeding in actually, you know, working on climate change, working to protect orcas, these issues that cross the borders um, that don't, you know, when, uh, you know, wildfires burn, you know, they, the smoke goes across the border. It doesn't pay attention to that 49th parallel. Uh, when salmon are accidentally released from a pen, you know, uh, that are like Atlantic salmon, they don't follow, you know, they go all over the Salish Sea. And so I think that that's one of the animating things for, for the region is this real appreciation of the natural beauty of the place. And I, I grew up here, uh, I wasn't a hiker to begin with, I sort of was a, a reluctant hiker uh, as a teen, uh, but in, in college I really got into it. And so I think that's that's the one thing. And I think also just the, the real um, creative spirit here. I think there is kind of a DIY creative culture here that's different from New York or uh, L.A. or, you know, in other cases, Toronto, you know, when, you know, Vancouver is looking. And so, yeah, that's for me what animates it, I think, Mm -hmm. is that the intersection of those two things. um, Yeah. And my take would be, uh, I think a lot of folks would have a similar answer. Mm -hmm. They might add something about the politics. But I think the politics would be the thing that everyone would say something a little different about. Yeah, and it's interesting because Oregon, Washington, and British Columbia all have basically center-left governments now, uh, which is obviously in contrast to the, uh, lots of other places in North America. But at the same time, we have places where we're not going moving forward. You know, Jay Inslee's running on, you know, climate change, and he's done, he has, you know, a good record. But, you know, there are ways that, you know, Washington or Seattle is behind on a lot mm-hmm. of environmental mm-hmm. efforts, and they we didn't pass, a car, you know, a, a carbon tax. Right. Uh, you know, this legislative session was great. Uh, and then British Columbia maybe is moving forward a little bit better on housing policy, you know, in Vancouver, but their mining p- policy and their timber policy is atrocious. Yeah. You know? So, um, so that, you know, it's this mix, you know, we were sort of liberal, but then, then you've got, you know, the stuff on the other side of the mountains and mm-hmm. it's, it's a, it's an interesting mix. Plus we have Idaho and Montana. Yeah. Which we haven't <laughs> talked about. And that's significant because those are vastly different places. And yet we still, so I think on the culture side of things, one of the things we're interested in is like, how do we all fit into the same place and how do we all relate to it? Because it's not like people in Idaho who are significantly more conservative than people in a city like Seattle or Portland or, or uh, Vancouver. It's not like they don't care about the environment. It's like the same mm. kind of investment, but the language that we used to talk about it is so different, but we want very similar things, which is 
to me, kind of very fascinating to think about, you know, and we like don't really talk about what's off the I-5 corridor. Like we just mm-hmm. literally neglected that Montana and Idaho, like yeah. most of Idaho is part of this bioregion and mm-hmm. the Okanagan Valley, mm-hmm. which is more conservative than the west side of Canada, you know, like then when you get on the other side of the mountains and yet we share watersheds that we share fish, we share oxygen, we share smoke that sits over these places <laughs> now. And that's, that's real, you know, don't we yeah. also share at least at the macro level, a cultural aesthetic too? I mean, yeah, we're the yes. big cities, but there yes. is a Cascadian culture. Absolutely. Yeah. So you said the word language, you said the language we use to talk about it, meaning maybe a left language and a right language. Yeah. You're a poet. Yes. What help help us understand what is going on? Why is there this dialogue that isn't really a dialogue? It's really two sides shouting around the same, a similar culture and the same bioregion. I think we use really different things in there. You know, they're in terms of like a sort of more conservative aspect, aesthetic or politics in the bioregion versus a liberal one. We do talk about similar things that the language we say is just really different. So one thing that if you're looking at conservatives or Republicans or however you want to categorize mm. this this other side that's not necessarily in the cities, is uh, they really like this concept of freedom, you know. So to use terms like energy freedom mm. instead of climate change mm-hmm. is significant to opening the door to talking about it. Like, do you want energy freedom? Yes, I fucking want energy freedom. Yeah, right. Damn, yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> right. But no, that climate change is bullshit. Right. You know, it's like we're conditioned to respond to certain words and terminologies. Mm-hmm. And I think that I don't know that we're going to find a common terminology. But one thing that's really useful as somebody who both teaches expository writing, argumentative writing, and is on the culture side of like making culture, poetry, creative writing side is that um, we forget about counter arguments and what that means. The power of being able to utilize the language and the words that the person or the group that you want to persuade is actually using. We've forgotten about that. And yet we saw it be so fucking effective in the 2016 elections. Mm -hmm. So absolutely effective. And yet we forget how powerful counter argument is and knowing like what, Mm -hmm. what are your terms? Like, how can I talk to you on your terms? Not just like, I'm, I'm panicking. I'm panicking about these things. These are my terms, but like you think about it differently we care about the fish. You like fishing. I like fishing. You like drinking good beer. I like drinking good beer. <laughs> but for some reason, when we argue about politics, we're just butting heads and we're not talking about these things that we actually love and care about. Mm-hmm. I think one thing that's really interesting is just following in Idaho, there was just recently they passed um, on a ballot measure, basically Medicaid expansion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, you know, this is a very conservative state. And how did they, you know, they phrase it as Medicaid expansion. It's basically expansion of Obamacare, you know, and they're not talking about it as Obamacare. They're talking about, you know, and then, of course, the Republican, you know, legislature went to try and backpedal and and, and they they weren't successful. There was a big backlash. And so it's really interesting. I think places like Idaho are changing. Spokane, we did a piece on Spokane and Spokane is fascinating Mm -hmm. right now um, because people are fleeing Seattle. Like I think I saw a stat that 2000 people are leaving King County. Uh, for Spokane County every year uh, because it's not affordable anymore. Right. And so that's changing the dynamic. Mm-hmm. It's getting more progressive and liberal as mm-hmm. newer people are moving in. So that east, you know, the east side is changing. Whole new wave of gentrification. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Paige, I want to stick on this language thing. I actually want to talk about that. 
how do we use you know again let's take as a given that there's there is merit in connecting us with a, a more energy efficient faster route i think one of the things i talked about with jonathan your your uh, i don't know if he's your co-founder but uh, yeah, your your, 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 yeah. your peer is <laughs> you know look if you're if you're gentrified if you're pushed out of a city and and you, if you are part of kind of the ring of you know still trying to chase your economic opportunity but you're kind of out and this would be helpful so we'll take it as a given that you know transit and especially long transit is very helpful for a region. How do we use the language of, you know, I don't think we need to go to Montana for high-speed rail in <laughs> Washington, but how do we use the language of Spokane? How do we use the language of, you know, I'll just say Tri-Cities again, to sell this and kind of convince Washingtonians, because we're the first domino, right? We've yeah, got to get Washington, yes. then we'll get everyone else. What is there to say and what's the argument that we can make that is on everyone's terms? Oh, one of the things that's important to us is going out into the communities and learning what's important to the individuals in these different neighborhoods. So what's important to people in Bellingham is going to be different to what's important to Seattle or Tacoma or Portland. Um, same thing is going to be when we look at Spokane, if we look at uh, the Tri-Cities areas, those narratives are going to be different. And it's being mindful of that and looking at how uh, high-speed rail as a solution is going to help those people's first uh, four thoughts and, and concerns, but also about their their concerns about how it might change the way that they're living. So for example, um, we'll use Bellingham again as an example, and there there's concern that people might move in and it would change the, the landscape of their neighborhoods, um, costs would increase, et cetera, and really kind of turn it into another Seattle, like Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, there's always a risk that that might happen, but it's also what are some of the benefits of this coming here and what are, are things that we can do to plan so that your community culture stays intact? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then and then staying on that, I, I'm curious, Tarika, why you think we lost the carbon tax? And, and, and again, mm-hmm. I think about it personally in terms of something about the culture that wasn't ready to do that, mm-hmm. right? The, the collective Washington, what, what was in your uh, very expert opinion? <laughs> I actually am a little bit nervous to answer that question um, because it it was, I, I think there was a number of factors. I think that, well, for one thing, there was so much money spent in opposition to the carbon tax uh, being grossly outspent by people really using language in a manipulative way, as you were saying, and, and, and using opposition and marketing research on what people respond to negatively and being able to use that to frame, uh, you know, what was going to to be happening uh, with the carbon tax to misrepresent it. And so I think you can't really undersell the value of being able to afford to get that misleading language into everybody's homes, yeah. <laughs> you know. But, you know, the, the, the topic of language is one that's really interesting to me as a transplant uh, from the South, uh, from a culture that's really f- uh, a lot more direct than here. Um, uh, when I, I've, I've lived here four years now, but uh, my first year here, I had a moment where it dawned on me that the, uh, the reason I was having such a hard time conveying myself to others and, and really clearly understanding what they were saying was that we we're all speaking English, but I'm using the English language in a completely different manner in which then they're using the English language. And, um, and it took me quite some time to adjust the ways in which I use the language to, um, to, to be understood in, 
saying things that I thought I was saying extremely clearly. <laughs> and so I think that that is another thing that, that kind of defines the Cascadian region. There's a very different usage of the English language here compared to other places I've lived in the country. Well, like in New York, we growing up, we used to say always. And that just meant sometimes. <laughs> right? uh, she's always late. Like, not really. Not really late. But yeah, so I know exactly what you mean. But what do you think is an example of, of, of that? How, how do people react differently to, to language here than in where you came out? Well, I think that it's, what's interesting is that uh, back home, I'm from Arkansas originally, and I, I have family in North Carolina. So I spent my years between North Carolina and Arkansas. I've lived in Louisiana. I've lived in Georgia. And for, according to my family, I'm a little bit too passive. I'm, I'm not, I don't speak up enough for myself. And of course, when I moved here, I was way too direct. And and the feedback I'm getting is, oh my God, can you calm down and bring it down a notch and not be so forward and demanding? And I'm like, what? Yeah. You know, it's just this totally different dramatic change in the way that people interpreted the way that I spoke. And so I think one, one of the major differences here is that people are fairly passive. And so um, I had to intuit what they meant from what they were saying, because they were not saying what they meant. Um, <laughs> and so, so, so part of being successful here was learning how to decipher what people are actually saying. And they might think they're speaking very plainly, but to me, they were not speaking plainly at all. Can you help me decipher? <laughs> like, follow me around my job? Is there a workshop How to speak so. Cascadia. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's great. So unfortunately, we don't have like, you know, anyone from British Columbia here today. But, you know, what are the ways I'll, I'll direct it back to the uh, editor of the magazine who maybe you're on a daily basis speaking more. What are the ways that we really are more like Cascadia than we are like United States or mm. Canada in your yeah. observation? That's a great question. And I, I go up to Vancouver quite a bit to meet with folks, meet with writers and, and you know, keep getting a sense of, of what's going on there. And I'm hearing increasingly that yeah, particularly on politics, I think we're, you know, Vancouver is really tired of looking to Ottawa on a lot of politics, um, you know, whether it's the, the pipeline or um, a lot of other issues they feel and like culturally kind of ignored. Like one of the things I do pretty frequently is I'll, I'll you know, I'm always daily trying to find um, writing by writers in the region. And so looking at, you know, local websites, but also uh, stuff, you know, national websites, you know, and so I'm going to uh, like the New Yorker or, you know, other national publications and ones in Canada, like the Walrus. And, you know, it's so-and-so is from New York. So-and-so is from Brooklyn. So-and-so is from LA. So-and-so is from Brooklyn. So-and-so is from, you know, and then there's like one from Seattle or one from from Vancouver. And so I think, you know, I think there's a sense that we're uh, a bit separate, you know, and, 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 and just kind of ignored a little bit. And, and we have a lot in common here. And I think we should be looking, you know, to the, you know, the city that's just three hours to the south or to the north and, and, and working together. Um, how is that culture, you know, similar? Um, well, I'll yeah. add something. Yeah. I'd love for anybody to chew on this. Yeah. I don't think we feel ignored with quite the same, I'll choose my words carefully here, yeah. but, 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 but maybe petulance. That some of the other uh, regions of the of the North American continent do, I think we just kind of go okay, fuck them, mm -hmm. and we kind of have a very independent spirit, and and it, we we celebrate this region, we celebrate that divorce mm -hmm. from the yeah. capital, right? Um, in a way that that I think is very, it may not be unique, but it's distinct mm -hmm. uh, in this region. I don't know. Do you have a thought? It is about very unique, and actually, it's part of the best part about being here 
is that we're not like New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, Toronto. And it's it's so tied to being ignored. Mm. And yes, we are ignored, especially like in a... I don't think that literarily there's a more ignored literary city than mm. Seattle. Portland, people pay attention to Portland. People pay attention to Vancouver. But especially like in terms of the big cities here, no. Seattle, for some reason, has like sort of still remained off the books. And one of the things I love about being here and have loved since the day I came here in 2005 is the wildness that's here. And if there's something I could say that sort of culturally knits us together in this region, it's there's a, a sense of wildness, not just aesthetically, but politically, socially, and artistically. And part of it is from being ignored for so long. It's like we're tucked up in the corner, we're on the frontier, right on the ocean, you know, we're where nobody really looks at us. Like Montana had a huge fire like two two years ago and mm -hmm. no one talked about it. It mm -hmm. was enormous. And everyone's like, oh, that's just happening in Montana. And people are like, Montana are like, we got this. We're fine. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. And so there's a there's a resilience here and there's an absolute wildness that has not been tamed yet. And the only other place I really have experienced that kind of wildness in a much more negative way is where I'm originally from in New Mexico, which is total cowboy, mm. crazy caballero country, you know, but this is a very different kind of, of thing about it. And it is very attached to the land and having so much wild land there. Being near something like the North Cascades or the Cascades in general is phenomenal because they're so unmapped. The Olympics are gorgeous, but they are so mapped. There's trails everywhere. They're mapped. They're written about. Like for decades, they've been written about. There, there's dozens of books and maps you can, but in the Cascades, you can't. You have to orienteer. You have to go on trail. If you want to bag a peak, you got to get your butt up there. You got to find your way, and that's that's wild, you know. You just dropped some trail master land. <laughs> <laughs> this is something I'm taking you out this weekend. <laughs> Um, but it's, I mean, that's, that's real, you know, it's attached to the land. It's attached to that sort of wild, that conservative wild spirit you find yeah. on the east side of the yeah. mountains in Montana, in Idaho, in Eastern Washington, it's on the peninsula, like crazy people on the peninsula being like, we're going to do this weekend this way. We're going to go hunting. We're going to go fishing. We're going to try this new artistic form. We're going to push this kind of policy because we're in this region, you mm -hmm. know, like this is our, and I, and I feel like that's true of Northern California. That's true of most of Oregon. That's true of Washington, most of Montana, you yeah. know, like all of these regions and, um, and Canada and Alaska, yeah. you know, we get a bit of Alaska and a tiny corner of Wyoming in our bioregion and that spirit of wildness and a kind of freedom to do whatever it's more than at this point it's gone beyond this sort of just DIY aesthetic and just become like a a thing about being here you know mm -hmm. it's like even when you look at like people talk about their dating profiles everyone's, everyone's got to go hiking yeah <laughs> even if they don't go hiking you have to put it you know like that's because that's the spirit of the place you gotta have your outdoors pictures yeah totally <laughs> even if you like faked it at the park yeah. <laughs> like, in this huge like douglas fur at the park you know, like, <laughs> I, I, I never lied about hiking but i did i did add two inches to my height so <laughs> probably the same with the hiking. same type of thing yeah yeah well so DIY, that's a great 
way to think about what your guys are trying to do. Now, it, would be, it wouldn't be actually DIY. There'd be very massive community involvement. But, you know, it's not like the federal government is really necessarily stepping in right now. Right. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're trying to connect this region, you know, kind of ourselves, right? Totally. Does, does, how, how, what I want to ask you is, how do you organize a community that when you know that no one out on the outside is even going to help you do it, mm-hmm. when you have to do it from the inside? I guess it comes back to uh, who we are as Cascadians, who we are, regardless if you're from British Columbia or if you're from Washington State or Oregon, is that we're all people who um, came here for opportunity and have that get it done, roll up your sleeves attitude. Um, It's been that way historically from when people uh, came over for the gold rush to when Boeing happened to when our music scene exploded to the tech boom. You know, Mm -hmm. that's part of the story. So uh, the folks here have the gumption to do that and it's looking beyond the normal ways of how do we get this project built so it's uh learning from what people have done that's been successful and not successful so looking at um we're looking at taiwan and their high-speed rail system currently uh france is another big one uh, i went over to berlin to learn about uh, the german rail system last fall and just seeing like what is working there? What are we taking away from folks? And one of the learnings that our organization gathered um, that we hadn't initially thought about, we're thinking, yes, we want high-speed rail stations in the downtowns, you know, connect them to our transit hubs. But uh, one of the folks in Germany said, well, what about the airports? And I was like, oh, I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> um, and they said, yeah, we, we use them to supplement regional air travel here. So um, it, it helps when you're low on real estate, such as like at SeaTac or, or at YBR, um, high-speed rail would help take some of those regional passengers and move them through the corridor and open up those gates for the airlines mm. um, to have yeah. bigger aircrafts, international flights come in. Um, and so it's looking at things like that. Okay, that's a good business angle for uh, you know, like a code share for an airline to to participate mm-hmm. in it, mm-hmm. um, but also looking at private financing as well. So Texas Central, which is another high speed rail project that's currently underway, they're a little well, bit maybe. further. <laughs> all this, right? Yeah, they're almost, almost there. Almost yeah. underway. So they're they're expected to like start construction within the next year or so. Uh, but they're looking at private financing, so all all business interests basically paying for this. And um, then we also look at you know what happened with California Rail recently, which was all government funded, and um, you know what what happened there. You know, there's a lot of touchiness there. But when you have a government funded project over a large part of the state, you're going to run into delays which which you may not be able to meet and and need more time just because you don't know like what you're digging through or you have legal issues or it's so much as every small town wants a high-speed rail stop and then it's no longer high-speed rail um, and having to navigate those conversations so you know we look at all right what other other countries have these systems are using private business models um, japan is a big and and how are they successful and what are they doing and so this the texas example they're working with um, the manufacturers of the shinkansen and basically learning from this japan model and so we're not there yet we're still in our planning phases um, and we'll have more about uh, alignment and station stops and things like that in in June when the next WashDOT study comes out. But uh, you know, that's something that we could be open to exploring is how can we we get businesses on board to explore this more? What are the needs of the communities along the way and the, the needs of the airports as well? Like how could we help support a better business model and a better uh, sustainable model 
for our long-term planning. Trika, oh, did you have yeah, a... I just want to say, like, I think that's really kind of so interesting and compelling because that attitude that somebody started the question for you is that, that you the roll up your sleeves kind of do-it-yourself thing. Um, there's, because parts of the region are so progressive... Um, She's doing finger quotes. Yeah, for I did. For, <laughs> so for the self-professed progressive with sure. finger quotes, um, there's a kind of resistance to a neoliberal model, which in a way, combining business with a kind of like mm. that kind of incentive, to me, is just fucking smart in America. And it's the kind of thing that when you're talking about speaking to like large population that might be very politically or socially different or use different forms of language, that's just smart to have a business incentive, but to sort of sell it to the, to the cities that are self-professed progressive and like really skeptical of this kind of neoliberal thing, which they see as like Mm. when business steps in, that skepticism is such a tension here right now. And to see for the progressive progressive contingent to see something like the California rail, the fail and really that was a ridiculous project they ran that in so many ways it was not done well and it was dropped and in the weirdest and most unfortunate ways but to see that as something that's failed and rejected and have that as a talking point Mm -hmm. from these different areas creates a particular kind of tension in the state to be able to sort of do that so i'm kind of fascinated with the like kind of business models that you're talking about and talking about what kinds of businesses you can bring into the bioregion because this is so essential to how it's been built and how we've like thrived as a bioregion and brought in all these other things and it's been useful to the arts as well as much as people don't like to admit it no. <laughs> yeah. but but it is with um you know, learnings from you know the the issues that california had one of the biggest problems that they ran into uh was community outreach mm-hmm. which is the ba- mm-hmm. the basic you know you got to tell people what's going on and you got to get <laughs> yeah. people on board yeah. Air quotes on board, right, on board. with with uh, the project. Otherwise, people are going to feel um, left out. You know, they're if their small town isn't you know right. got to yeah. stop. You got to be able to bring those people on board and understand why, um, you know, how this is going to help you, but why it can't be at your back door, mm-hmm. uh, and all those questions in between. And one mm-hmm. of the great things I think that um, Washdot and what our region is doing so well in the planning for this is that they've already caught on to that. So it's like, mm-hmm. all right, right, our next steps are going to be, we're going to focus on this early and make sure that it's done uh, well and that people understand the why and the where um, and just be very upfront and clear about that. And then also looking around corners too uh, with business funding and things like that is we don't need to wait for the federal government to step up, right. um, yeah. nor, nor should we, you know, yes. and, and roll up our sleeves and get it done. It's, you know, so you, business right thorny either side pros and cons you got it played a major role in and i don't mean to harp on it because it's not just it's not just the carbon tax it's all the stuff but Mm -hmm. that's the one that i think a lot of folks outside the region will look to right and they played the the certain business interests played such a major role in pushing that this way but there is this kind of new hope where you did see some business interests actually pushing in quite the opposite direction. How do you think, Tarika, that we can leverage that to do what we're talking about doing with, you know, rail mm-hmm. and to talk about what we're maybe doing to uh, perpetuate the arts, right? How do we take that wealth and that influence and actually use it to make this a, a, a 
a more livable and more sustainable place? Well, I think um, before the panel, we were briefly talking about uh, social media, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and perhaps the evils of the downsides of social media. But I think one of the things, uh, the positive things about where we, the moment where we are is that public image is very important to um, companies and um, the public gets to have such an impact on that by using these platforms. Every company wants to be seen as having a green image. Every one company wants to be seen as being great on diversity. And I think that you can leverage that in order to push them to actually be those things that they want to be seen as. And you that's, have that's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> and you have you have, you know, some movements and some organizations trying to do that, organizations that that may give companies scores on this and scores on that and, and ranking them and those companies try to move up in those rankings and in those scores. And I think that we're not really doing enough to leverage um, their desire to be seen in those positive ways and to have that positive image and to be talked about positively on social media is incredibly important to companies in the time that we're living in. I think there's a lot of different ways in which we could push them um, on, on environmental issues, on diversity issues, to actually be uh, delivering. You know, one community that has done kind of exceptional with that is the queer community at Pride. Mm-hmm. It's like kind of gross to talk about it, but like just getting that, like every business now wants to be at Pride, and now Pride is like, if you're gay, it's like one of the most boring things you could go to because it's like <laughs> the most corporate parade ever. You're like, why is Alaska Airlines here? Where are the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence? You know, like, you know, it's like, but it's but the, it's a really similar like the the, the leveraging. It was barely even leveraging. It's like. Listen, Budweiser, do you want to make like millions of dollars during June or do you yeah. not want yeah. to make millions of dollars? They're like, well, yeah, we do. We like millions of dollars. Yeah. So, yeah. so I no. guess that always our family values prospect because they're yeah. not buying beer. Yeah. You know, but, and yeah. it, but it's kind of an interesting, I mean, it's, it's just the model when you're saying that, I'm like, oh God. That's like what the queer community did to like yeah. corporations. Like, listen, T-Mobile, do you want to yeah. be, do you yeah. want a good score on your diversity quotient? Like here, we're going to represent like people mm-hmm. with disabilities and queer people in, mm-hmm. in the streets right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think people, corporations have gotten very good at using language that looks mm-hmm. as if they're delivering. But I yes. think that we've also um, gotten very good yeah. at at looking through that language and understanding what is actually measuring up and what is not measuring up. And I think we, we could just do a little bit more to, to hold people responsible in ways that push the needle forward for things that we're trying to achieve. That's, that's fantastic. So so, so we were talking earlier too about um, with engagements and how, when companies are able to figure out, all right, so this is the sweet spot where it's going to resonate with people. They're going to retweet it, et cetera, but that only has a shelf life to it. Mm-hmm. And then it's on to the next thing. Um, and you mentioned that mm-hmm. we, we were already catching on to like all of the companies are doing this. Everyone's at pride. Like, Great. where do you think the tipping point is mm-hmm. and, and what do you see companies doing next? You know, no one has asked me a question yet. So, what do you think? (laughs) You know, honestly, I think that there there is a way. um, It's actually very like Barack Obama, like very like twenty five year old Barack Obama. You know, (laughs) which is like go kind of tell the the big factory that you're coming for them, Mm -hmm. or they can sit at the table and maybe 
they'll get 20% of what they want, right? It's, I think there's, there's a version of that where we kind of, maybe it's neoliberal. I don't know, but like, Uh, where it's like, where does, where do the two interests align? Mm -hmm. We're going to set everything else aside and find and and go like dig a tunnel Mm -hmm. to where those two interests align. And I think you find it with rail, with the environment, um, with the arts, you actually see corporate interests in very narrow ways Mm -hmm. aligning with each of those three things. Not a mining company doesn't align with the environment, but you know, most other companies really would, they're not interested in sick workers or what have you. So and I think that may be the unlock there is much more longer term is finding where each company's financial interests are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean like Amazon, you know, they've got a literary fund and they fund all sorts of projects all around, you know, you know, not just in the region, but you know, nationally and through the world. Uh, it would be nice if they like took a little more of their, you know, rocket ship money and like <laughs> put it into local arts and, yeah. and that sort of thing. Um, but uh, yeah, they're kind of weird about local arts. It's like they fund yeah. national and international arts more than they fund the actual city, not just the bioregion, but it's a little bit of a weird, mm-hmm. yeah, Amazon's weird like that. <laughs> Amazon's weird like a lot of ways. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Mm. Well, hey, so one of our guests uh, recently on the show, just a, one of, a one-on-one, he, he said something interesting. He said, when you're trying to build something, you want to build the next big thing where people yeah. are not necessarily trying to tear some other thing down, but they're trying to build up the thing that you're building and people are even drafting in each other's efforts and, you know, great cultures that reach their, now I'm using air quotes, but the zenith of of that time (laughs) for them, you know, the architects and the politicians and the poets and the, you know, the, the, the Greco Roman wrestlers were all kind of drafting toward the same thing. So I'd love to just kind of go around Robin and hear what you think that big thing is for this part of the world. Andrew, why don't we start with you? Does anyone else want to go first? I can go. I I mean, I think, I I honestly think that the next big thing um, environmentally for the Pacific Northwest would be being a leader on renewable energy because we're at a point where we know we have to stop using fossil fuels and and we're but we're also at this major point where the fossil fuel industry is pushing natural gas as this false renewable green uh, solution. And I think that we we look at ourselves as environmental leaders. We look at ourselves as always being ahead of the curve. And this is an area where we really need to actually get ahead of the curve with um, investing in actual solutions, um, trying to build up renewable uh, utility scale renewables. And I think that it, like, like you were saying, um, you know, if you get Washington, then other places will follow. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of places look to us uh, for leadership on that. And so I, I would say I would love to see that type of investment being made in the Pacific Northwest or in Cascadia in actual green renewable solutions and being the first people uh, to not just um, spend our energy on why fossil fuels are bad, but developing, um, investing money into innovations uh, for for green solutions. I would love to see us uh, be more of a leader on that. Amen. What do you, what do you got? I mean, I think that's... I absolutely agree with that. Um, I'm, of course, going to say that the arts are super important. And because um, the country, I mean, we're already seen as progressive. We're already seen as these sort of modes of um, on the precipice of potentially making something happen, um, whether for its renewable energy or the light rail or something else entirely. But the thing is, um, is we really actually need the arts to tell these stories to like put them out there. So I actually really think that um, having the arts boom, making a scene um, 
like solidifying a voice, like something about the culture is so significant to putting all these other things in place because people respond to that. They, you know, people want to respond emotionally. They want to have sympathetic and empathetic connections. They want to see similarities and uh, things like the arts. But in particular, I think storytelling is really important to that, you know, not just like I'm going to write a story, but also like film and television and things mm -hmm. like that mm -hmm. are really important to saying this. Like no one's going to really know about the light rail and these amazing potentials if you don't tell the story, which is part of why you need people to do outreach for it, right? To like share that idea and like this idea of like we need to be this leader in renewable energy, but in a more advanced way, not these like old school 1996 ways, right? Mm -hmm. Like we're, and we were, we're on the verge of doing that. But if we don't get people to tell those stories in compelling ways, even through journalism, creative nonfiction, or a commercial or someone writes a song. Even know? in the yeah. arts, you know, yeah. one of the most important Latino film festivals in the world occurs every fall in Seattle. Oh, wow. It's, yeah. it's, it's organized yeah. by a Cuban expat who, yeah. you know, gets people he, who also lived in, in the artistic community in Mexico City. And, and it, it's just, I mean, you know, it's 40 films mm -hmm. from all around the world. People fly in here, but Seattleites don't go. Yeah, that's right? interesting. And so there's this, there's this like, we're missing an opportunity to tell the stories that are already happening and the making The fact that business. my organization doesn't even know that and <laughs> half of the board is Latino yeah, right, is right. kind of tragic. Right. Well, we'll talk we after. Be, yeah, we would be like promoting the crap out of that. Yeah. So and my new there, idea yeah, so. is a museum, um, an arts museum, powered entirely by renewable energy that hosts this film festival every year. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's my big and, idea. And, 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 how, and how do you get there? Yeah, exactly. All everyone's comes so, so, Paige, 50,000 people. Paige, I have a feeling I know what you're going to say. It's going to come to a shock. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. Hi, speed girl. Um, but it, both of these ideas, I think, are, are are very important to getting people on board with high speed rail too, because um, we were talking about potentially uh, funding through business versus government, and what that does is, um, if you have a government project, it's very regulated, and there's there all these steps that you have to go through, and so your outreach meetings tend to happen, um, you know, like at three p.m. on a Tuesday, and they're kind of dull and don't really communicate <laughs> everything that you need to, yeah. to learn. Like the, the average person wants to learn. They're not communicated in a conversational way mm -hmm. to people. It's more of, um, you know, engineering or urban planning terms that gets delivered. So if businesses are coming in, that brings in more opportunities to say, how can we do storytelling? How can we almost, um, you know, market this to people mm -hmm. and really like make people uh, tap into emotion and see like, how is this affecting people um, on their day to day? And so that brings in the creative storytellers that can bring in like musicians. Mm -hmm. I'd love to see like a music video about high speed rail. That would be cool. <laughs> I'd be on board with that. Um, but also for the sustainability aspect too. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why we're, we're so excited for this to be coming here. Um, and we were talking about the airports, the high-speed rail vehicles are electric, and so they are producing one-twelfth of the emissions of an airliner, and so it's a it's just a huge life-changing um, um, you know vehicle in our sense. So yeah. There's the marketing. There's a story. Life-changing <laughs> yeah. vehicle. Uh, so there was a, a study that was done looking in in Europe and. If people, I believe it was if 25% of regional airline passengers in Europe used high-speed rail for their journeys instead of using an airline, and this is, you know, both systems already exist, uh, then it would offset 
carbon emissions about 25% um, by 2022. So just like a huge push, um, you know, just from a, you know, a small fraction of people being able to change that mode here in Seattle, we're running roughly uh, 1100 flights a week between mm-hmm. Seattle, Vancouver, and Portland. Oh, that's a lot. Wow. That's a lot. That's a, that's a ton. Yeah. And kind so of ridiculous amount. Yeah. It's it's a lot. And so, you know, some fun fun facts about that. We've learned that the the landing pattern, um, you're already in the pattern to land in Vancouver before you're even taking off from Seattle. It's that close. And yeah. you burn the most fuel during takeoff. So when you're running a lot mm-hmm. of short hop flights, um, you're wasting a lot of fuel. So for example, it's about uh, like 2.7 times more efficient to run a flight from Montreal to Miami than it is to fly from Seattle to Vancouver just because of that, Jeez. of what's burnt. Um, and, and things like that, that um, you, we just started researching and thinking about, and then some of this came up with the Green New Deal um, you know, talks that came up recently. And so we're just finding these things like, yeah, this is something that could really change the way that people do regional travel um, and help the environment and help provide those sustainable solutions. The, the studies say that for trips within 600 miles or less, so within that window, um, they are time competitive and cost competitive on high speed rail as to air travel. So if you look at that, not only in Washington, Oregon, British Columbia, how could we make that model scale to the whole country? Um, and there's organizations like, uh, like, like Virgin is looking at the Virgin trains, looking at that in some other cities currently from Kansas city to, to, to uh, Chicago. Wow. And then also from Atlanta to Charlotte. So, so you're saying the next big thing that. is high speed rail. It is. That's what you're saying. Yes. That Where do I sign? Long one day, right? <laughs> you got some fun facts in there, but yes. So no, high great. speed rail. Well, that, yeah. well, I like thinking about that though, because one of the things that would help the solidification of any identity for Cascadia would literally be a high-speed rail Mm -hmm. to get people around, like Mm -hmm. to be able to just fly down to Portland really quickly without traffic and Mm -hmm. without getting on a plane and getting searched, which I always do. Mm -hmm. Like that would, you know, I mean, that's huge in terms of like connecting people and Absolutely. Yeah. All right, Andrew. I think so. so yeah, I've yeah. come up with my I've had my time to think, and and I think it connects to the, all the things you've said, and that's my idea is really it's sort of a more uh, a, a thought process thing, is like getting more people to think about themselves as being from Cascadia. Mm-hmm. I think is a really great project, and that's why I started the magazine I'm doing. Is like I really. Um, it's so important to cross those borders and, and on many different levels, you know, and connecting by, you know, you know, in transportation, you know, connecting on environmental issues, cooperating. You know, there's the Cascadia Innovation Corridor now, which is this big organization. It's pretty high level stuff and it's getting together, you know, the leaders of British Columbia and Washington and Oregon. And that's great. I mean, it's like that border is a is a is a big stumbling block on so many of these issues. And we could be doing so much more um, if if that border wasn't there. Um, and I'm not saying, you know, I'm not advocating for, you know, creating your own country sort of thing, but I think, you know, definitely, I think there's so much more that we can do um, together on so many of these different issues. Um, and it's really encouraging to see that, yeah, you know, the governors of those and the, and the premiers of those provinces are coming together. And then, yeah, just creating that sense where people actually think of themselves as being Cascadian uh, is, uh, can help, 
help that and promote that and, and, and feel this like sense of identity, feel this like sense of home here. Cause I think, um, you know, particularly as the region is changing so much and new people are coming in and people are fleeing, like, you know, it's like, that's always changing, but it, feeling that sense of home, I think does, um, it's important. It's and, like Dixie, but without the baggage. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, there's maybe. a little baggage. Just baggage <laughs> That's so. fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, so rapid fire. We do this uh, every episode. If you care about, you should fill in the blanks. I, I you can't start with me. Okay. No one ever wants to start. <laughs> yeah, I've yeah. got a really silly one. Okay. Yeah. Uh, if you care about the Cascadia bioregion and these issues. You can sign up for the Cascadia Daily Newsletter back in there, and it's a, it's a, um, and no, really, I mean, take a look at uh, our site because I think it's uh, Cascadia Magazine. It's it's a, it's a way to really feel a little bit more connected to this region and learn about the stuff that's that you don't know about. I've I've learned so much about British Columbia now that I didn't know before I started. Great. If you care about high-speed rail <laughs> and you want to roll your sleeves up, um, help us out with some outreach, or even just like follow along on the latest updates, you can reach out to us at Cascadia Rail on both Twitter and Facebook, and we are at CascadiaRail.org online. Fantastic. Tarika, if you care about, you should. I would say if you care about small businesses, you should support your local bookstore. Give it up for Brandon and Horizon Books, by the way. All right. All right. Grand finale. <laughs> and if you care about living here, just go for a walk and enjoy where you're at Yeah. while you have it. All right. Yeah. Well, everyone, thank you so much for serving on the, the this panel and speaking to the crowd here and, and, uh, and being part of creating the exact same uh, culture that we're talking about creating. So thank you very much. I really appreciate Thanks. your time. Thanks for having us.